Let's dive into the Word of God this morning, continue worshiping the Lord through the preaching of His Word. Boy, Nathan brought a a great sermon last week from Ephesians that Paul's prayer that we would know the power of the resurrection. And we wouldn't even know there is a resurrection unless it was revealed to us and recorded for us. We wouldn't know anything about God if He hadn't revealed Himself to us and recorded it in Scripture. We wouldn't know who we really are and what our problem is and what the solution is and what our purpose is and what's going to happen at the end of our life and at the end of times. And we go to this word because it reveals truth to us. And Paul prays that we would know. And he's referring back to everything he just taught in Ephesians 1. All about what Christ has done for us. That we've been elected, we've been called, predestined. He's died for us. He's risen again. The Holy Spirit is given to us to dwell in us and illuminate the eyes of our heart. And even says that he's a down payment. He's a pledge, like a guarantee, a promise that we know our salvation is secure. And we wouldn't know all these things if we weren't told and we didn't hear and believe them and trust in them. And so the Bible puts a high emphasis on the preaching of the Word and learning the Word and being a student of the Word. And yet, we find something working inside of us that often wants to misinterpret the meaning of the Word of God. This is in all of us. You've got to come to grips with this as part of our fallenness. You must be suspicious of your own interpretation of Scripture and the way things are. We get convinced right away that I know what I'm talking about before we've even taken the time to hear others and to do our research and to study. And what ends up happening is we think that the Word of God is powerful because it affirms everything I already believe about myself. Wow, that's power. That's not power. That's what the world is teaching. Trust in yourself. Trust in your own heart. If you believe it with all your heart, it'll come true. All your dreams can come true. You just have to believe them. You get to choose what the meaning of life is. You get to choose your Identity. Wow. These are powerful temptations the world is throwing at us. And it goes right back to the garden. Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God, face-to-face communication with them, paradise. And the tempter comes along and says, did God really say... Well, yeah, he said if we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will surely die. 
oh, here comes a different interpretation. You won't really die in the way you think dying is dying. You will die to ignorance. You'll have your eyes open. You'll be like God and you won't have to ask Him what is good and what is evil. You'll get to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, that would be good. That's what God does. God decides what's good and evil. and We're supposed to be like God. And they fell for the temptation. And because we are direct descendants of Adam and Eve, we fall for the same temptation. Even as Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, and we want to get to the right meaning of Scripture, we still find the old man, our old nature, tempting us to make the Bible say what God didn't intend for it to say. Now, it's utter foolishness when the world says that you can decide for yourself what the meaning is. Because in order for that statement to make sense... That statement can only have one meaning. Think about that logically. If I tell you, hey, you can make the meaning of a sentence anything you want to make it, then what's stopping you from changing the meaning of the sentence I just spoke to you? It's a self-defeating statement. And when people say that kind of stuff, what they mean is, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that to me. When I speak, it has one meaning. But when you go to the Word of God, it, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Or if you go to the Constitution of the United States, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. It, it's fluid. And this teaching has crept into the church. And it always creeps into the church. You say, well, how could this get into the church? Because in our fallenness, we want it in the church. And so we must be on guard. This teaching that the Bible can mean to you one thing and it can mean to me something different ends up meaning nothing then. It loses its power. One meaning, many implications, and so many applications. One meaning that can have many implications, but the implication has to be tied to the meaning. And then from there, each of us may make a a different application because our lives are different. But we must get to the proper meaning. And so this morning we come to a parable that is really hard to interpret. And much violence has been done to this poor parable over the centuries. And so I'm going to use it as an opportunity to help you understand how to get to the proper interpretation of a passage and why that is so important. So let me read the passage to you. You may have never heard this passage. It's kind of one of those ones where you're like, that's in the Bible? Jesus taught that? Luke 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and Not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Gee, that cuts close to home, right? (laughs) Sadly. 
There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Immediately when we hear parables, we want to insert ourselves into the parable somewhere. So take your pick. Are you the widow or the unjust judge? Or maybe sometimes parables were not intended to be handled that way. It's certainly a difficult parable to interpret. It throws us off guard. We just got a parable like this a few chapters back, actually a few verses back. Remember the parable of the unrighteous steward? The master's going to fire the steward and the steward goes out and cancels a bunch of his master's debts so that after he gets fired, these people will owe him because he did a favor for them. And the master finds out and says, wow, that's pretty shrewd. And Jesus says, you should be like this guy. And we all go, what? Lie and cheat? He says, no, don't lie and cheat. Be shrewd with the resources God gives you. Of course, in an honest way, he's making what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's a very common Jewish way to argue. If it's like this in the lesser sense, how much more should it be like this in the greater sense? And this parable falls into that category as well, as we'll see. Now, the very beginning of the parable gives us a clue as to the meaning of the parable. Luke provides us the purpose of the parable. Don't miss that. Don't jump straight into the parable. Jesus says... Or uh, Luke says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So this is the purpose of the parable. Something about this parable is going to help us to know that we shouldn't lose heart when we're praying. And so then the question we should ask is, why would we lose heart? And what specifically is it that we might be praying where we would lose heart. These are the questions you ask up front. A good student of the Bible asks a lot of questions of the text. In fact, when I took my hermeneutics class in seminary, that's hermeneutics is the fancy word for interpreting the Bible. We started with a passage and they said, we want you to make ten observations about this passage and ten questions that you'd like to follow up on. And then they moved us to 20. And then they moved us to 30. And we eventually got to 50, and each time the passages were getting smaller. So, less text, more observations, more questions. And that was kind of their Mr. Miyagi way of teaching us uh, hermeneutical karate. 
And it was quite effective. You're like, how am I going to get 50 questions out of one verse? Next thing you know, you're like, how can I stop at 50? So it, it just takes practice. Don't assume the judge and the widow represent actual people. These are fictitious characters. There are such things as judges and widows. But that's not the point of this parable. In the parable of the prodigal son, we know that the father represents God. And the older brother represents the Pharisees. And the younger brother is just a run-of-the-mill sinner like all of us. And the parable is intended to expose the Pharisees' hatred of God's mercy. So in that case, that's a parable where we are intended to make a correlation between the characters in the parable and people in real life. But in this case, we're not supposed to make that connection. So we have this unjust judge... You know, like, well, you might be thinking, well, God is judge, and in a lot of Jesus' parables, the judge represents God. No, wait a minute. This judge is no godly man. He neither fears God nor respects man. He's broken the two greatest commandments. He doesn't love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he certainly doesn't love his neighbor as himself. He's using his position of power for his own benefit. He probably takes bribes. People would understand this kind of judge in this culture. And the widow would be absolutely powerless in this situation. She has no money to bribe the judge. She has no pull, no power, no connections. All she has is persistence. Now, if you're going to turn this into a one-to-one correlation with how things are in the spiritual realm then this passage would be telling us sometimes the way you get God to answer your prayers is to persistently bug Him. To manipulate. To wear Him out. This is certainly not what this passage is teaching. The judge is definitely not representing God. But it does put us in a position where we would say, what if I was in this situation? It gets you thinking about the plight of this widow and how desperate and helpless she would feel. And when we start making the transition to the spiritual meaning, that should be the heart attitude of the sinner. I'm, I'm desperate. I have no resources. I can't change the system. So, in that sense, we can put ourselves into the parable. But, but the comparison stops there. This is not a parable that's teaching us that... You're going to have to manipulate God's emotions to get him to give you justice. So Jesus is making a contrast from the least to the greatest. Can you help me advance the slide, please? 
Thank you. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Did you hear what he said? Right? He said, she's going to wear me out. So I'll finally give in. Now, clean break. Now, a, a, a contrasting particle. But now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? We're the elect. We're chosen. We've been purchased by God through the blood of Christ. If he went through all of that to become our God and us be his people, how much more will a righteous, caring, loving judge answer the requests of his people that justice come down from heaven? God's motive, as we know from the Bible, is his own glory. What would bring God glory? That's the question we should always be asking. What would bring God glory? If justice was done on the earth. That's a prayer we can pray all the time and be confident that God will answer. Maybe not the way we want justice or the timing we want justice, But generally speaking, God is just. He's the only one who is just. And he is the justifier. If you're not in Christ this morning, you haven't put your faith in Christ, you don't want to pray this prayer. Come bring justice. You don't want justice. You want mercy. And maybe you've fallen into that horrendous trap of victimhood where you believe you are being oppressed. Oh, you're being oppressed by your own sin. You are being oppressed by your own sin. You are a slave to sin. And yet you've convinced yourself that you've got better things coming. And you want God to bring justice on all these people you're mad at. You think you deserve a better life and you're upset at God. You're crying out these confusing prayers. On the one hand, you're accusing God of not giving you the life you deserve. And on the other hand, you're crying out to Him because He's the only one you you know who can fix it. And you need to reset your whole perspective on life. There is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. All have turned aside. There is no one who is just except God and God alone. In fact, a story is coming up in just a few more verses in Luke 18, right? The rich, young ruler. Good teacher, pause. Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. Are you acknowledging that I'm God, Jesus says? Because you're right. Now proceed with caution. Do you really want justice? If you're in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ, you believe He died on the cross for your sins, your sins are paid full and full, it is finished. And you are declared righteous because Jesus' righteousness has been transferred to your account. You can cry out this prayer 
day and night. Lord, bring justice. Bring justice in this unjust world without fear of condemnation. For the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no more condemnation. So then Jesus finishes the parable and he kind of puts the ball in our court now. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who believe that trust in God's perfect character that he will bring the right kind of justice when he returns? Can you live perfectly satisfied right now that maybe some things that are very unjust in your life, and I'm not saying we don't have injustices in our life, but can you be satisfied that in God's timing he will make everything right? That I don't have to take revenge. That I don't have to manipulate the situation to get justice. That I can let go of bitterness and fear and anger and extend forgiveness in light of the forgiveness that has been extended to me through Christ. Will the Son of Man find this kind of faith when he returns? It's, it's really the ball's in your court. This is what is true. If you are one of God's elect, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you can cry out day and night and you can trust that God will bring justice in his timing, because he brought perfect justice to you on the cross, how will he not bring justice to all the rest? Paul picks up on this in Romans 8 when he says, him not sparing his own son, how will he not give us all things? If he did this for you, why won't he do these other things that are right and good and just? And so in Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We can have this confidence. So Jesus is commanding us to pray a prayer that is really just acknowledging what is already true. So that our minds don't drift to things that aren't true. So let me introduce you to uh, five interpreters of, of Scripture. The sad scoffer, the dangerous deceiver, the misguided mystic, the random reader, and the serious student. As we move from one to five, uh, we get increasing confidence in the salvation of these people. We get increasing spiritual maturity. We get increasing consistency in their discipleship. We all want to move to category five, which I guess if you're a hurricane would be good. Uh, now, these aren't necessarily biblical titles. These are just observations I've made in my own walk with the Lord and in ministering and discipling as a pastor. So, the sad scoffer doesn't believe in God. He doesn't care about the scriptures. He, he mocks the scriptures. I used to be very angry about these people. But now I, I just see them as sad. 
I have pity on them. To be blinded to the truth and knowing they're going to have to stand before God one day and give an answer for every careless word that's come from their mouth. Why is it bothering me? Yes, it's offensive to a holy God, but he's, he's, uh, I'll let him deal with the wrath. I'm more upset with the dangerous deceiver. These are people who use the word of God to deceive people away from a knowledge of the true God. And often, they ought to know better. The misguided mystic I have a special place in my heart for because these are some of the sweetest Christian people I know. <laughs> and and uh, the way they interpret Scripture, though, God bless them. And we're trying to help them because they think studying isn't spiritual. It's, it's got to be some mystical experience where God places something on my heart or shows me in a dream or... I turn the page on my devotional calendar and bam, word from the Lord. Well, if it's scripture, it's a word from the Lord. No matter what day of the month it fell on in your devotional calendar. The random reader believes the Bible but often misses the meaning because they've pulled the passage out of context. And then the serious student studies the Bible systematically and works hard to get to the true meaning so he can make proper application. Be like the Bereans, Paul says. Students of Scripture. So, a sad scoffer, he'll mock the Bible as a book of outdated fairy tales or a record of evil male domination Or whatever bone they have to pick with the Bible. And they'll say things like, oh, you believe in that book with the talking snakes? This kind of thing. But then you'll notice that the sad scoffer, when it's convenient for them, will take the Bible literally and say, aren't you Christians supposed to be turning the other cheek? Oh, now you believe the Bible. They're attacking us, and and when we fight back, aren't you supposed to be turning the other cheek? Wait a minute. (laughs) Either mock the Bible or don't mock the Bible, but you can't stand on both sides of the fence. The the dangerous deceiver is often a, a liberal professor. Sadly, a lot of seminaries turn into cemeteries because their doctrine is dead. They've got some social agenda and they're using the Bible to vindicate their ideas about society. They would probably use this passage to say, okay, so the, the, the widow represents all those oppressed by Western white civilization. You think I'm making this up? I'm not. This is taught in most of our secular universities, and a good portion of what claim to be Christian universities. And the the evil judge, that's the system. 
And so you've got to fight against that kind of oppression. And you've got to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and fight the system for justice. And they're called social justice warriors. And their whole life is about trying to rid the world of social injustice. Except they've defined things that aren't really injustice as injustice. And sadly, the real injustices in the world, like human trafficking, get unnoticed. They're busy trying to make all the bathrooms unisex. Like this is some big injustice. What's interesting about these folks is eventually their disciples say, Yeah, you're right. And since you're the professor and you didn't give me the grade I wanted, you're the unjust judge. And maybe sinfully, I laugh. (laughs) I don't know if I should laugh about that, but it's like, wow, they're eating each other alive. They're cannibalizing themselves. It's, It's sad to see. But that is what's going on in our universities. Another example of the dangerous deceiver, the false teacher, like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teacher. I've heard this passage used by prosperity teachers to say, the reason you're not rich yet The reason you're not healed is you've got to be like this widow in this parable. You've got to persist, persist, persist in prayer. And the reason you're poor and the reason you're not healed is you haven't prayed enough times. What a sad, cruel thing to tell those afflicted with disease. And what a dangerous thing to tell people who are avaricious and are hungry for money. Wait a minute, I thought the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If there's anything the Bible teaches us is to to not be chasing after money. I don't know where the prosperity gospel people get this gospel from. It's certainly... Another gospel, as Paul says in Galatians 1, which is no gospel at all. But this is a popular passage in the prosperity gospel circles. The misguided mystic, I I love these folks. They've got a deep abiding faith in Christ. They do love God. They, They profess respect for the Bible, but they tend to be addicted to their own opinions and intuitions which they often mistake as the voice of God. And so they rarely arrive at God's intended meeting for the text because they think studying is not spiritual. Like if it was really from God, it would just pop into my soul. The mystic often interprets a passage based on his current circumstances or experiences. A number of years back, we had a gentleman come in to talk to the elder board who acquired a piece of land in Bakersfield. It was gifted to him. He wanted to build a church on that land. That's, that's a good, noble endeavor. We can go to the Bible and say, God does want us to plant churches. We don't need a mystical sign from God. But he was convinced that there was a church out there that would finance it, and he would be in charge of the whole project. And he was reading a lot of Nehemiah at the time. 
which is the book everyone wants to read when they have a building project in mind. And he had become convinced that, you know, he was Nehemiah and this was that and this represented that. And we, we finally had to pass on the opportunity. And I remember he came to us and he said, so my wife and I were praying, which is a good thing, and we were doing our morning daily devotional. And the devotion was on David not being allowed by God to build the temple. That someone else would build it. And he said, that, that was a word from God that w- I'm not supposed to build a church. Someone else is supposed to build it. So I don't know who they ended up giving the land to, but they, they moved to Texas. God bless them. I don't think there's a church on that piece of land right now. But, you know, uh, it, it, I can be s- uh, sinfully cynical sometimes, and it took everything in me to not ask him, So David wasn't allowed to build a temple because he was a man of warfare and bloodshed. I mean, if if we're going to treat the Bible that way, how far are we taking this interpretation? Do you have some kind of bloodshed in your past that you want to, you know, you're not going to do that. You understand. Now, let's be honest here. Who has ever interpreted Scripture that way? I'm raising my hand. I've, 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 I've done it. You know, you've got something on your heart. And it's so much on your heart that every passage you read is about that thing. Yeah. And not to say God can't speak to us that way. I mean, sometimes it is obviously like that is what that passage means and it perfectly applies to the situation in my life. Thank you, God, for giving me the word I needed in the moment. But the misguided mystic wants all of their walk to be that way. Jennifer and I were uh, discipled in a charismatic church, and I remember there was a couple who was having marital difficulty, and it was just the typical marital difficulty all marriages have, nothing out of the ordinary. But she had convinced herself that she was a spiritual widow, and this passage was teaching her that she needed to fight against the injustice of her husband. And so I'm going to go to the judge Right? It all made sense to her. And I'm like, well, if the judge is, like, then the judge you're going to isn't your husband. The judge is the judge, if we're going to use the passage that way. And the judge wouldn't give her full custody of her kids. And so then she was like, yes, he's the unjust judge. So I'm like, so you're going to persistently bug him? And, you know, it's like, and the sad thing was their marriage wasn't that bad. And she had used the word of God in the wrong way. And it was now, in her mind, affirming everything she believed wrongly about life. That's scary. Like, really? God is, is, is telling you to think of your husband in these terms and to dissolve your marriage. I don't, I don't think so. Don't pin that on God. And so you see, if, if we get so locked into something that we want, suddenly Scripture will tell us whatever we want it to tell us. So you've got to be on guard. The, ra- the random reader, he's better at interpreting Scripture, but sometimes because he's pulled a passage out of context, he doesn't get to the actual meaning. And 
I'm going to pick on a, a dear brother from the grave, E.M. Bounds, considered one of the great teachers on prayer. And his, his book on prayer is like the gold standard for prayer. And yet he takes this passage, takes it out of context, and says the meaning of this passage is that you have to pray again and again and again and again and again if you expect your prayer request to be answered by God. And they have this term we don't use in the English language very often anymore called importunate. And so this was the example of importunate prayer. And I remember reading that in seminary and going, I am like the lousiest prayer warrior ever. I give up way too soon. And so I tried to put this into practice and got so frustrated, exasperated, and felt like a failure because you can't keep praying about a prayer request forever. And there's so many requests that I started to feel guilty if I, okay, well, I need to pray for that one more time. One more time. Well, one more time. That's not what this passage is teaching. The serious student of the Bible realizes that the purpose of the parable is that you would not lose heart. And I was losing heart. It was intended to not lose heart. So looking at the context, why would the believer lose heart? Well, the word justice is important. It's repeated four times in the parable unless you're using the NASB, which translates justice, legal protection, two times. So a good student of the Bible would look at other translations, would look at the Greek. Even if you don't know the Greek, there's helps that can help you if you haven't studied Greek. When we see a word repeated that many times, the passage probably has something to do with justice. Jesus uses the messianic title, Son of Man. He always uses that title when he's talking about the second coming. Didn't he just teach about the second coming right before this parable? Right? So this parable has something to do with the second coming. So here's the deal. Jesus knew, though he didn't know the exact day of his return, that it would be a long time coming. And he knew his people would be tempted to be discouraged. All the persecution, all the injustice. I guess I should just give up on praying that Jesus will return. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. No. It will happen. He's promised it will happen. He's prophesied it will happen. It will happen. You can pray, pray this prayer with confidence. And you praying it isn't what's going to make it happen. What it's going to do is change your heart to have faith and peace. And praise to God that he will come and he will bring justice. And praise God that he brought justice to me on the cross. And Jesus absorbed the justice I was supposed to absorb. And instead I get mercy. That is what this passage is teaching. You look at the context It'll give you the answer. The very next parable that we'll look at next week, the two men who go to the temple, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, I'm not like all these other people, these sinners. The tax collector says, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And so sandwiched between that and the story of the second coming is this parable that tells us, cry out for justice, he will return. And cry out the way that tax collector cried out for justice. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what this passage means. And isn't that way more powerful than, hey, when you go to pray for that raise you wanted at your job, if you don't keep asking and asking and asking and asking, don't expect God to come through. That's not what this is teaching. Often the Bible tells us to pray things that we already know are a guarantee. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Moses praying when God says, I'm going to wipe out Israel. No, don't do that. You said you were going to make your name great through these people. What will the nations think if you wipe out Israel? And for 40 days he prayed, Lord, have mercy on Israel. He almost demanded it of God in in a respectful, humble way. You said you would do this. Of course God's going to do it. He just wants us who are slow to learn and slow to trust, to reinforce in our hearts, God will bring justice. Not in my timing and not the way I would package it, but he will bring justice. Pray that prayer over and over again, and you won't be disappointed. Amen. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. Teach us to interpret it rightly. That we would be approved workmen, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For your glory and our good. Amen. Amen.